So the emotional repression as a, as a white person, you know, that's intense. Then you have the witch burnings, which are completely connected to my, my self-knowing, my inner healer, yeah. my capacity for self-care. I mean, was literally, we were burned at the stake. There are so many senses. So yeah. I'm not saying we need to limit ourselves to four emotions, but if you, if you have to get started and you're completely disembodied and you've just had a nervous breakdown and you're suicidal, it's like, it's good to start somewhere. You know, you've got to get some earth elements. You've got to know your ABCs before you can be fluent. You know, I think that the power issue comes when the white person is is kind of the host and generally owns the space. And I'm talking very materially, you know, the structure, the building. Yes. Um, the white person like bought the food or, you know, I've, I bring food, but it's like even the generosity is coming from the fact that there is material wealth, unearned material wealth that bought the food that, you know. Um, so I think the rage is sort of like this wrong assumption of like, I'm here to help you, you know. This is the second part of our book discussion of Lama Rod Owen's new book, Love and Rage. Today we had a conversation with Annie Hoffman. She is the owner of Art and Soul Yoga, which is located in Cambridge, Massachusetts. She has been a yoga teacher for over 33 years. In this discussion, we explore what it means to embody rage. We discuss how rage shows up in our relationships with men, as well as how rage situates itself in our unique identities. If you want to learn more about Annie Hoffman's work, you can visit her website at AnnieHoffmanYoga.com. You can also learn more about uh, Wissahickon Wellness at WissahickonWellness.com. So enjoy this intimate conversation with Annie Hoffman. We're here. We're recording, but we don't have to officially start yet. Um, if you don't feel ready, we can check in and just kind of flow into the actual recording that will be posted. Uh-huh. Yeah. How are you feeling? I'm fine with that. Or, you know, I'm, I'm fine with going. I mean, <clears throat> I have my poem. I got... You know, I can ground in and, and start when whenever it's it's um you know, and I'm feeling nervous, um um kind of I just had a sneezing attack coming into this room, um, which has been all closed up for the winter. So I don't I don't think it's mothballs, but something um something just um I just sneezed like twenty times in a row. <laughs> Jesus, that's a lot of diaphragm work. <laughs> <laughs> and just preparing, like, you know, preparing to talk about love and rage. I just, I feel like I've been in a state of somewhere between irritation and all out, like, anger. Yeah. You know, for, for days, if not my whole life. I mean, it's just, it's uncovering, you know, Johnny and I had this conversation about sort of, um, you know, when is anger expression a kind of um, p picking of the scab? You know, because if we're, I mean, there's this whole wound and then the anger is on top of the wound. But the way in which I feel pretty much constantly enraged mm. around him, like the expression of it sometimes is like 
picking off the scab, you know, it's not allowing for the healing. So yeah. how, how do we, how do we use our anger in relationships such that it is not re-wounding? Um, yeah. yeah. That's, so, um, that's so, he talks about that in the book. So I'm, I'm probably just going to include the sneezing attack on into the recording. So we're officially podcasting. (laughs) Talk about embodiment. (laughs) So we're, we're on right now. I mean, you're You're always on. We're always on. We're theater artists, darling. (laughs) And uh, love and rage, love and rage is on and it, it tenderizes us and it makes us vulnerable. You know, um, right now, Annie and I are discussing chapter three, four, and I'm going to sneak in a little bit of chapter five. Yeah, um, I chap- yeah. Did you read it? Well, I I skimmed it. Yeah. Yeah, but you know a lot about that emotional labor. We know, right? But I think you're the one that turned me on to the expression. The expression of what? Of what is emotional labor? Mm. Wow. Yeah. Well, I just learned uh about about it in some in a deeper way um but we'll talk about that there's three levels of emotional labor um the first chapter chapter three that we're discussing is a conversation on love and rage which Mm -hmm. he has a conversation with kate johnson of the um the buddhist peace fellowship chapter four we begin to do our practices and then chapter uh six uh chapter five wait i'm confused no that's yeah, chapter chapter five is embodiment. Um, so I wanted to have my friend Annie Hoffman on this episode because I see Annie as someone who it works very interestingly, uniquely with rage and anger. Um, all of the people that I've invited on this podcast to discuss this book, um, I'm changing my language. Lama Rod says we shouldn't say that we are angry people. We are not anger. We are experiencing anger. So I, I've invited folks who I think skillfully are interested and curious about working with um, anger in a skillful way and are doing so in their own way. So, Annie, could you uh, introduce yourself, introduce us to who you are, what you do, and how you identify? Hmm. Um, I'm just so happy to be um, talking to you, Brandon, because you are one of my favorite people. and. Uh, the issues around anger are so intimate, really. There's nothing more intimate than I think our anger because as he's saying, it exposes our wounds. Um, so I, I am willing to be vulnerable with you and you are with me. So that's why I love you. Um, how do I identify Jesus? That is a difficult one. Because, I mean, my name is Annie Hoffman. Hoffman is, of course, my my father's last name and um, implies his lineage. Um, I do identify as a woman uh, fundamentally because I've given birth and breastfed and had menstrual periods and am 15 years postmenopausal. Uh, So I do identify as a woman, and that's been my conditioning, which is largely what connects me to oppression. Um, And I am currently in a heterosexual relationship. I was in a lesbian relationship for my all of my 20s. 
Um, and I just don't identify, I identify that sexuality is a transformative, engaging, ever changing uh, connection. So I, I, I am also more connected to monogamy. My partner is polyamorous. That's probably the source of my rage. <laughs> um, so that sexuality, I think um, white, um, my, my European ancestors came to these shores on one lineage line from the Mayflower and on another to Pennsylvania and Philadelphia area, you know, uh, centuries ago. Um, I have um, enslaved African blood, uh, owners of enslaved African blood in my veins. Um, so whiteness is, you know, a whole podcast and feels really, really alive right now. Um, so white woman, 65 years old, I just became a senior citizen. So age feels, you know, like a thing. um something that can be measured um but um also something to discuss um so age gender sexuality class is is ruling class european monies that have been stolen as in profit from others labor um is associated in my family uh, so have I have I touched on the identifiers? Yeah, you were very generous <laughs> in, in, in naming yourself as a direct benefactor of um, white supremacy and whiteness. And you've also been very generous in naming how you identify with your womanness as a location of your oppression and potentially a location of what sparks the rage that that we're working with. Um, one of the things that I love about Annie and I's relationship is that there are so many things that look different on the outside as far as race, as far as gender, but so much of what we've connected with is how we've raged against insensitivity together, how we've raged against patriarchy together, both consciously and unconsciously. And I wanted to have this conversation with you because I think although you do benefit quite, you know, directly from the legacy of white supremacy, I yeah. think you are, uh, w- w- one of our mutual friends, Will C, said Annie is one of the most under underrated activists in Boston. And I, I, I feel that way. You know, you're, not, you're doing so many uh, amazing things that you're not asking for credit for. Um, and so I'm thankful to have you here. Will C posted um, once, I mean, he didn't say it, but um, that white allies should move like the G in lasagna silently. I <laughs> <laughs> love that. That's right. And that's, yeah. that's definitely how you, how you do things. So I want to leap in and um, I'm feeling like we, you know, we could jump in. You and I tend to be very, very, very loquacious. I've been using this word loquacious a lot. And it's my favorite word. Um, verbose. We like to use words. And so I feel called to start maybe with our water element aspect, beginning with the poem that you have to offer. And then we'll see where our conversation develops from there. Beautiful. 
The poem, one of the few that I know by memory, and I love that Pamela chose one that she knows by heart as well, is a white lesbian poet uh, from Maine, actually, which is where I am right now. Uh, <clears throat> her name was May Sarton, and she died maybe like five years ago. So the poem is called Love. Fragile as a spider's web, hanging between tall grasses, it is easily torn. A passing dog's tail or a gentle breeze can do it. We spiders are patient weavers. Several times a day, we gather ourselves together and weave it again. Who knows what keeps us at it? Hunger, no doubt, and hope. Thank you. you. You said that from memory. Yeah. Yeah, you commanded it. It was very, you know, it was almost like you were reading. It was so sure. Why did you share that poem in relation to love and rage? Well, it's called love. And, you know, once we, once we name rage, it's like so sexy and violent and powerful. It's like, I almost forget the love is there. <laughs> <laughs> Because the rage is like the storm and, you know, the love is like the sun that's shining behind the clouds, but, you know, who sees it once the storm gets going? So yeah. I wanted to remind myself that what La Mirada is really talking about is love and yeah. um, that we must come from love, you know, that we must seek to reconnect over and over again. I love that in the poem, you know, the spider is kind of outing itself as um, like a worker bee, like you just come back over and over again and that a relationship is easily torn, you know, it's easily yeah. torn. It can happen a passing breeze or a dog's, I mean, intentionally and unintentionally, the web of connection is torn over and over and over again. And we have to be menders you know, menders and tenders. That's the emotional labor. That's looking for forgiveness. That's being willing to say, you know, I was wrong. Um, being willing to say, ouch, um, you know, actually that, you know, I felt hurt. That's all. Um, you know, Pamela brought that up too. So it just speaks about vulnerability to me and the natural world. And I love the spider's web as just like what, how much beauty, how much beauty, a spider's web with dew on it. I mean, there's something <laughs> more beautiful. That's so gorgeous. Yeah. Yeah. I was just looking at a spider web the other day. It's absolutely amazing. And uh, when you were talking, the thought that came to my mind is how our, our, um, our judicial system, our criminal justice system, does not allow the presence of love to emerge where it needs to emerge most, where there is violence and confusion and deprivation. That's where we need the love the most. And it, it sounds like this process of forgiveness, this process of vulnerability, this process of remediation is actually not possible. And so 
it's so fascinating to be in this time where we're talking about defunding the police and we're working towards that because of the ways in which our system has continually perpetuated violence on black bodies, female bodies, queer bodies, trans bodies. So when you say this, I think of this movement to actually defund the police, this very political activist frontline work actually being work to return to an ethic of love. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There was an article long, you know, early on um, in the pandemic. I think. Well, anyway, I can't remember when it was, but it was like turn the police uh, policing over to grandmothers. Wow! Just give it to the grandmothers because they'll, you know, make the chicken soup. They'll, you know, perfectly capable of tough love, you know. But there's, um, you know, a legacy of like wanting to impart you know, integrity. It's like Brian Stevenson says, we're not the worst thing that we have ever done, you know, yeah. and how do we lift each other up? Yeah. Especially yeah. When we've done something that probably induces shame. <laughs> you know, it's like we've talked about shame being so hard to me metabolize. Mm. Um, so yeah, I'm just in there in, in a relationship, you know, with my partner that is just constantly setting off my rage, possessiveness, jealousy, um, you know, and it's, it's hard to just really settle into the quietness, the neutrality of deep listening. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love that you're approaching this book through the lens of relationship. And I, I wonder, I imagine, and I also assume that because you're in a relationship with a man, that part of this 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 woundedness and this rage that's emerging most likely has a lot to do with gender and the gendered wounds that we carry and that we transmit onto one another and that we try to work through. The lens that I'm working through this book is is much is very much so through the lens of race and also through the lens of a queer man who is interested in dismantling patriarchy with other queer men first and foremost and then you know secondly with other non 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 queer identified men so i think it'll be interesting to figure out a way in which we can weave both of these conversations separately and as they relate to one another as we both navigate where we're most wounded right where we're most wounded trans historically and also in relationships with other people well, maybe the homecoming of the ancestors, you know, the, the seven homecomings in the practice chapter, you know, might be a good place for us to start because I've definitely found the legacy of my matrilineage to be the source of my woundedness. Yeah. Um, I, would, I would love for you to end the episode with, with that practice, if you don't mind. Okay. Um, I want to talk a little bit about chapter three and, you know, I'll go a little bit more uh, structurally here. Um, he talks, I have a couple of highlights. He talks about uh, clinical severe, his own clinical severe depression being an impact of his own anger. Um, he also talks about not seeing his anger as a way in which he is creating harm for himself and others. Um, he talks about our addiction to peace as being a component of wanting to bypass uh, the discomfort of rage and the discomfort of woundedness. And this is the question that I wanted to ask you. 
the link between whiteness, anti-blackness, and rage. One of the things that I've often seen in progressive spaces where, you know, people are trying to come together and dismantle whiteness and systems of oppression is that white people are often so blind to their own rage. And that unconsciousness I've experienced turns directly into anti-blackness. Can you talk about that from the lens of someone who's working with race, working with dismantling systematic oppression in your own work with white rage? Oh, geez. Um, uh, well, we also worked in Sh- at Shambhala. So, you know, we've worked in kind of spiritual and creative as in playback theater contexts where there's also a bit of the spiritual bypass, you know, yeah. so, so there's the, you know, I think white rage has just been coded, especially for, for women um, in a kind of politeness and a nice, nicey niceness. I mean, he talks about that too, as a black man, black male rage is so unacceptable that he finds himself, you know, and you've used that language a lot. You have to leave part of yourself at the door. Yeah. Um, to be in a space. And I think for, for white people, and I can really just speak as a white woman, um, you know, I, I, I have that tendency to be, to be, you know, the nice and the polite, but the power issue comes where it's like, I get to be the host, you know, because if it's happening, if something's happening at my house or, you know, I own a studio or, you know, I think that the power issue comes when the white person is is kind of the host and generally owns the space. And I'm talking very materially, you know, the structure, the building, yes. uh, the white person like bought the food or, you know, I've, I bring food, but it's like even the generosity is coming from the fact that there is material wealth, unearned material wealth that bought the food that, you know. Um, so I think the rage is sort of like this, wrong assumption of like I'm here to help you you know and like poor black people don't have so Will C talks about this like feeling like he's a deficit when he enters a space you know but it's not true because I mean on an emotional level it's not true because you know in our conversation you know your your sensitivity and your emotional literacy has and your embodiment and your knowledge has been, you know, I mean, inspires me in every moment. So, but I'm just talking about the, the, the social forces of like white ownership, the white it's, you know, maybe it's white savior, you know, in that, but, but it's like, there's this resentment that's to me, the maybe passive aggressive rage, like he spoke about in the second chapter, just, you know, that, like how much more do I have to do to help you? <laughs> yeah, that is so powerful. I'm learning, you know, uh, Trump said that uh, Black Lives Matter. Well, it wasn't Trump. It was one of the mayors of New York said that Black Lives Matter is out to take uh, take white people's land. That's their whole mission is to take white people's land. And that was all over the news. And I, as you're talking, I'm, re- I'm relearning or getting very clear about the way that white rage is attached to ownership and property 
that was again stolen from indigenous people yeah. and how when that sense of ownership becomes feels like it's being encroached on that's when the white rage becomes projected onto black bodies mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah that makes a lot of sense to me and then i also think about even cultural norms when you're in spaces where there is a culture i i i'm very good at identifying a culture of whiteness wherever i go it's just a muscle that i've developed yeah and so that even becomes an ownership because it always leans towards the comfort of those who are in power. Yeah. 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 So th- I was going to sum up that long question that I asked you. I was going to sum up as why are white people afraid of black people? But I felt like that would probably just be too direct. So I kind of wanted to give like more of a tapestry of what we were talking about. But but now I'm realizing the fear just comes from a fear of losing power. And black bodies seem to be for a lot of us, for a lot of folks who are not doing this work, seem to be the gateway of dis, dis of, of 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 losing your power. And this brings me, I think this is still within the third chapter. It, it, it kind of brings us into the fourth chapter of practice, where Lamarat talks a lot about true power and true self-autonomy being the ability to work with emotions, being able to identify with the emotions and to have self-autonomy based off of caring for oneself, based off of how you're feeling and what you're needing. Can you talk a little bit more about that exploration for yourself? Um, And it could be through any lens, as a woman, as a white person, as a person of a certain social economic class. How do you see emotional intelligence and true power being related? Well, for myself, which I think every, you know, every person has to go through some kind of wounding or suffering to, to know, you know, to, to feel, to feel grief, you know? So, um, I'm, I'm just, I'm having two rivers of thought collide. One is like the historical Church of England, which forbid grieving in the year 550. Like what? Yes. In England, it was not, it was not allowed for people to beat their breast or lament, you know, that was for like either the lower classes or not for men or not, you know, not for church going folk. We were not allowed to grieve um, publicly. So, so the emotional repression as a, as a white person, you know, that's intense. Then you have the witch burnings, which are completely connected to my, my self-knowing, my inner healer, my capacity for self-care. I mean, was literally, we were burned at the stake for hearing voices and, and, you know, which, so there's that history. And then my own personal history, I had a nervous breakdown at the end of college and was hospitalized and from that time on, from 21, when my parents were getting a divorce and my world was cracking apart, um, I have majored in emotional literacy. I mean, I had to go to therapy and hear like, there are only four feelings, happiness, sadness, fear, and anger. So just like, you know, if that's the menu, maybe you could point to one, you know, it's like, I had to crawl out like kindergarten. 
you know, I mean, my son in kindergarten had those faces, like, what are you feeling? You know, happy, sad, scared. And he'd be like, I feel like a pizza. I mean, mean, (laughs) it's not, you know, I mean, there are so many senses. So I'm not saying we need to limit ourselves to four emotions, but if you, if you have to get started and you're completely disembodied and you've just had a nervous breakdown and you're suicidal, it's like, it's good to start somewhere. You know, you've got to get some earth elements. You got to know your ABCs before you can be fluent. So it took me, you know, a good 10 years to just be re-embodied in knowing how I feel. And then that coincides with the years I was with a woman, you know, in part. Interesting. (laughs) So the women's movement, feminism, I was a potter, you know, working with earth and so forth. And then kind of my, my childbearing years, like in my thirties and getting involved with Johnny, like with a man, I feel like I began to use my emotional literacy as a hammer. One thing. And this is what my, my father was a complete academic and my mother never went to college. And so this was the source of their fighting. My mother was having powerful feelings and my father would just talk all over her. And my mother said, I never won an argument. I mean, anyhow, I just feel like in relation to men, it's like emotional literacy is the one kind of island where women have some um, natural... um, like the only game I have natural um, capacity for is Twister because I do yoga. You know, it's like, <laughs> but if it's trivia, like my mind is not good at remembering little facts like that. So anyway, um, I'm saying well, that emotional literacy was my my complete goal in my 20s. And then when I got involved with a man, you know, I know that I use emotional literacy as a kind of power over. Yeah. Yeah. And we've, we've talked about that. Um, as friends, I remember when we first started being friends, I was sitting in your kitchen, you were making soup and you were telling me about your, your mental breakdown that you had. And then you found yoga and one of the ways, and I, you know, I apologize. I didn't let the listeners know that you are a yoga teacher, that you own a yoga studio. You've been teaching for how many years, Annie? You may have said 33 years. 33 years. And the way that you presented your story to me was that after your, your, your breakdown, yoga and movement and embodiment was one of the ways that you stitched yourself back together. That's right. And I really uh, resonate with that as an embodied person, as a person who um, is in the arts. I find that for me, being able to locate myself as an individual and being able to also sense what is needed to enhance an ethic of love in the spaces that I am. I have to be in touch with my emotions. And though the other thing about emotions for me is that it allows me to understand what my ancestors went through because I'm feeling that my ancestors, my slave ancestors, my black ancestors, and my indigenous ancestors are all speaking to me through the emotional body. Mm. And I wonder if white folks, if more white folks felt safe and welcomed to touch into the emotional body, if we might be able to dismantle racism from the inside out. Yeah, for for sure. But racism is, is not just a personal 
you know, is is not just an emotional issue. Obviously, I mean, we can we can we can enter that doorway, but until we are able to step back and you know look at the systemic you know 400 years of systemic um, deprivation and abuse and family disruption we we cannot you know we cannot really do our healing i mean we can start and we can have relationships cross race i mean we are you know we can love each other but you know i mean it was just how many years ago that the interracial marriage was the loving case was just i mean everything seems like it happened yesterday yeah it did it quite it quite frankly it did right? and it's ha- and it it's also happening tomorrow you know? yeah, that's right yeah. that's right that's right absolutely so but do you want to say any more about your emotional literacy as a man? Like, do you think that, like my son, who's queer as well, had a lot of girlfriends. So I credit him having girlfriends with his emotional literacy um, growing up. You know, he had a lot of girlfriends because they, uh, they felt very safe with him as a gay boy, I think. And um, I'm just wondering how you became emotionally literate yourself. Well, you know, I've been thinking, if you look at the the queer, the rainbow flag, it's all of the colors of the chakras. And I've been thinking a lot about, as a queer person, does that mean that I enjoy uh, occupying my full energetic self? And I think the answer is yes. The more I look into the metaphysics of what it means to be queer, the more I'm understanding that I embrace my complexities. Even so to the point that within the past year, I have stopped calling myself gay and I've approached queerness because my love is, um, like you said in the beginning, is fluid. And I'm no longer just attracted to uh, a particular type of person or particular genitalia. I'm attracted to an energetic exchange of love. And, And so part of my emotional intelligence comes from, I think, for whatever reason, being in tune to the queerness that I think a lot of us have access to, but we've been traumatized out of. And the other part of it is the woundedness that I've experienced as a queer boy, you know, not having spaces and being kicked out of spaces where boys were congregating forced me to identify with an emotional body that was nourishing to me because it allowed me to connect with the arts and allowed it easier for me to dance and it allowed me to be more connected to my spirituality. So Lama Rod also often says that in order to dismantle patriarchy, men have to be kicked out. You have to go through rituals of being kicked out of the group and being alone. And he says it's the same thing if you're trying to leave an abusive relationship or an abusive spiritual community. You have to be willing to be in the desert as Moses did. You have to be willing to be kicked out. And so my emotional literacy was my survival. It was the it was the food and the in the water that I drank while I was out in the desert. My struggle now is, my struggle now is to return to community with the gifts 
without being enraged. Because I imagine just as you are in relationship with Johnny, well, I want to talk a little bit more about this now, um, your relationship with the man, and it triggers all of this work around love and rage. So does it with me in my relationship to men that I'm romantically involved with and men uh, that I'm not. So talk. would you be willing to talk a little bit more about what's coming up for you with this book? And you texted me a couple of days ago and you said, this book is saving my relationship with Johnny. I would love to hear more about that. Yeah, well, that was three days ago. <laughs> <laughs> Today, I think, I'm not sure we can, we can handle, um, handle the weight of it. Um, yeah, three days ago, it was like, oh my God, like finally... You know, because I, I mean, I'm I'm constantly being called out by him for having like, you know, there there's that word in the book about like, you know, uh, policing the tone. Um. Anyway, I I have I have low level anger that's going on all the time, and um. Then sometimes it 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 sparks up into like a rage. And, um, you know, uh, on the, the, the positive growth end, I feel like the book is, is letting me really investigate and experience and own and, and see and name, you know, my anger as like, that's, that's a resource. Then the good part is also like, okay, the anger's there because there's a wound. And in my case, like, you know, the wound was, I mean, I had an emotionally incestuous relationship with my dad. Um, and so, you know, almost again, like the mirror opposite of the ways I've heard you talk about abandonment, but women talk about like, you know, there's two kinds of mothers suffocating and abandoning, you know? So on both ends of the spectrum, there's problems. You know? <laughs> like, mm -hmm. Um, and, um, so with, with Johnny, I mean, I just feel like I felt some freedom to really name anger and to name the wounds underneath that, um, and to really hear his anger as his energy. Cause he also was chronically depressed and, you know, is really coming out of that. And, um, that's great. And I think some of coming out of it is also being in contact with his anger. Yeah. And, you know, I think there's this question and relationship, like whose needs are on the table. Yes. So when my rage meets his rage, it's like, it's not very productive, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and so, and we could just say like, how do you listen? Well, there's another part in the book about when you're triggered how do you listen well while you're triggered? I mean, that's a PhD <laughs> yeah. right there, you know, yeah. in, in relationship. That's right. That's right. So, he gives us, he gives us the practice of the snow to see yeah. it, name it, own and experience it, let it go. And the let it float part is, yeah. is what I think you may be saying is that when the anger comes up, how do we lose our connection to it and just let it float and I, and I thought the same thing I'm like how do you actually do that that feels so heavy yeah well it's hot too fire rage is hot and so 
How do we bring in the cooling element with breath, the exhalation, pause, uh, perspective, spaciousness. Um, but in the heat of a conversation, I mean, it's just not there. We're, we're, we're you know, we, we've hit the ground running, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, there isn't time to go into a four-year retreat and then you come back and you're so disoriented anyway. I mean, I was saying to Johnny yesterday, he was surprised. I do not feel that 33 years of a yoga practice and teaching has really helped me much in relationship. Mm, relationship um, with other. With, yeah. With other. Yeah. 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 I that's mean, so it certainly contributes to my having a healthy body, um, you know, a strong body, a healthy body, you know, getting clarity. But all it takes is, and that's what, what I feel like, how can you be friends with a white person? Because, you know, being friends with a man, I mean, you know, a straight man, uh, whatever, like when there's that sexuality component in it, you know, which is another level of heat that's um, right. and fire and intimacy and uh, power. Um permeability, you know, surrender. I mean, these are difficult things to happen. And to create the conditions, you know, it's not just like you relax and then you can be sexual. No, if I relax, then I want to go to sleep. (laughs) You know, and I hate all all the sort of sexy adornments. Like I'm not going to put on a black lacy bra like that. that, No, that's, that's not, I'm not going to wear high heels, you know, no. And so just everything that has been traditionally kind of sexy for a woman, you know, like sexy for who, you know, I mean, those aren't things that are sexy for me. And we just did a Feldenkrais thing today and we were learning stroking as like a self soothing. It was all on self touch, you know, during the pandemic, I thought it was really interesting and we just like stroked our own like choose a body part and just like we just kind of stroked it with the right hand and with the left hand and oh my god that was so it it, it, i don't know if erotic's the right word just sensual so So i've I've been i've been doing that actually intuitively i've been i've been and i created a mantra for myself to identify who i am as someone who's healing myself and trying to help others heal in their own way. And one of the things that I said is I, I want to help people touch themselves, you know, as Bhumi Sparsha, uh, the meaning of Bhumi Sparsha, which is uh, Lama Rod's Buddhist community, it means touching the earth. And in the book, he talks about the body being an extension of the earth. So when we touch ourselves, we're touching the earth, we're loving the earth. And when, when, when I think of what whiteness and, and, and patriarchy capitalism has done, is it is tethered and that like your poem in the beginning it has tethered our relationship to ourselves so what are he says in the book the most radical thing that we can do is to become embodied again mm-hmm. and that that to me is both um a sigh of relief in the sense of oh i know something but also oh my god that is so scary because we do i know the risk of being embodied i know the risk that 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 creates for myself it's no easy task there's a reason why we don't do that but one of the reasons that i'm friends with this white woman who i'm talking to over the zoom call and for this podcast 
is because you allow me, you welcome, you welcome my embodiment. You more than welcome it. And any white person who welcomes my embodiment, who does not fetishize my embodiment, and who has a practice of welcoming their own embodiment is a white person that I can begin the process of trust and intimacy with. Mm. Yeah. So I want to mirror, I want to mirror back to you the ways in which you were doing so many things right, despite the struggle. Mm. Yeah. Well, you reminded me about joy and pleasure, you know, two weeks ago, because, you know, I need to keep welcoming that. I was just thinking of Mary Oliver has that line about just, we have to love, let the soft animal of our body love what it loves. Mm -hmm. And when we were doing the stroking, I felt like my body was like a cat. You know, I I don't, I mean, I, I don't live in proximity with a cat or a dog, but I'm familiar with, you know, if you sat down next to a cat, you might stroke its fur, you know, and you might tickle it behind the ear or... Uh, rub the belly or something like that I was feeling my body as an animal body yeah you know and removed from the pressure of like moving towards sex that's why when I start to you know I avoid touch with my partner because I just don't want to get on the sort of uh elevator towards sexual contact you know what I mean we don't we don't spend enough time just sort of saying Oh, just why don't you just stroke my arm, you know, where that would actually, I think, be a lovely practice for me in relationship where there's no like we're moving towards something, but just, you know, soothing kind of self self soothing or, or that, soothing with another. That reminds me of, of just the, the divine feminine, the divine feminine of of there being no aim to the sensuality that if sex does emerge that's part of the of the of the self-discovery and of the joy and the pleasure but what patriarchy does is it confuses the touch with one act and this is something that me and a few lovers have talked about of like why do we need to have an orgasm why do we need to immediately go into these sex acts why can't we hold this energy between the two of us and and see what emerges and um that makes me think of of I, there's something that I want to talk about in chapter four, but let's see if we can go back to it because I don't want to miss, I feel like there's a lot to talk still about, about women in relationship with men and men in relationship with other women, other, other men, um, as you know, you and I um, have those, those, those workings and our ability to work with anger um, and our ability to own our own story. I, I want to talk about that, but I just want to quickly say a little bit about um, the embodiment chapter, which which we can riff off of because this is some of the work that we do. And Lamarad talks about the different types of bodies. And I just want to quickly list them. And um, one, the first one, of course, is the physical body. There's the emotional body. There's the subtle energy body. There's the sexual body. There's the spiritual body. There's the collective body the social media body, and the ego body. I thought the social media body was hilarious. I don't know if that was a joke, but um, that's really, really funny. Did you and, say the emotional body? Yeah, the emotional body. You want me to read them again? Yeah. Okay, the physical body, the emotional body, okay. the subtle energy body, sexual body, spiritual body, 
collective body, social media body, <laughs> and the ego body. And as you're talking about the sexuality uh, with you and your partner, I'm hearing you wanting to care for your sexual body. And I'm also thinking a little bit about Melissa Alexis during her program. Melissa Alexis is a, um, a leader, a healer in Boston. She has a organization called Heal, where she gathers different healers together to do projects and to do research together um, with each other in the community. And she had a community elder named Darlene come where we talked about the seven different layers of sexuality. And one of them was sensuality. Mm. That, that, that a, 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 if we think of sexuality as a leaf, that one of the leaves of sexuality is just pure sensation, pure touch, pure smell, pure sight. So when I hear you talking about this, I hear you aspiring to unfold the lotus of your sexuality. And I imagine it can create anger and rage when patriarchy, the speed with which we are all operating, doesn't allow us to feel comfortable and vulnerable enough to do that work. Does that make, does that resonate with you? You know, it does. And it's, it, this is my work. I mean, I think I, I, I project and, and blame my male partner because I'm just kind of seeing his maleness. And because I had like emotional incest from my dad, it's like, I actually don't want him to get that close because closeness, too much closeness is where my deeper trauma lives. But then um, abandonment, which I feel like I experienced more from my mother, is on the other side of that. So, I mean, I just feel like, you know, my partner is patient, um, just really, really patient and is waiting for me to sort of figure my stuff out. But then in the moment of anger, will point to like my woundedness, you know, that it's my woundedness that's an impediment. And what I want is that my woundedness be lifted up. I have to do that work myself. Yeah. Now, what is it? He said, if, if you don't work on yourself, you become work for somebody else. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. And we can, at, we can ask for what we need. This is another part of the emotional labor part. And also a little bit of our chapter, the, I believe the chapter four as well in the practices. You know, I'm wondering, so I had a major embarrassment that occurred uh, yesterday and into today, where I realized, Annie, for the first time that I am an emotional labor manipulator. Ooh. I've and, and, and that. Yeah. So when you were talking about your emotional your emotional intelligence being um the thing that you use to have power over men, I realized that I do the same thing. But in my ways it's passive aggressive. So I love up on men in all these amazing creative ways. And then in my head, I'm expecting a return of some sort because I know, I know how unique this embodiment is. And when it's not returned, I get really aggressive (laughs) and I have to apologize to someone because I was so aggressive about my disappointment and Lama Rod's book put it back on me in the sense of I need to sit in meditation. I need to hold space with the woundedness and I need to either be very explicit about what I'm asking for 
and be open to it to an outcome that I don't necessarily care for right or doing the work the self-care the 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 first level of 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 emotional labor which is can I provide these things for myself and that was the work that I was by I've often bypassed right right I mean and this sits on top of you know the question that nobody ever asks us what are you grieving you know, so so to, how do we keep touching the wound, which the anger is on top of the wound? So, you know, I mean, this book, I, I feel like it's a bit of a tease to just talk about the anger and rage, like that's the surface, you know, that's the storm. But what it keeps pointing to is the work, the practices we need <laughs> to do to keep touching our own wounds. Like, that's not fun. It's not fun at no, all. It's not fun at all. Like, no. and when you get in a relationship, there's just like, you so much want the other person to mind read and to, <laughs> to bring you, you know, what you want when you haven't even said it. That's right. <sighs> this is what I do this. I do this. I do this. And I don't know if this is more of the feminine, the, 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 the wounded feminine energy that we all carry. Of course, this is not about, you know, sex, but, but yeah, I, I do this as well. And, I'm I'm learning how to undo it, and it's un it's in my relationships. It is it is unraveling so much love because as I'm doing this work with my family, what is happening is they're holding up a loving mirror to my own shadow, and that is the scary part because it's that if I if I take ownership of my own self care and also lean into caring for you and allowing me to care, uh, allowing you to care for me, we're, we're also going to rub elbows. And part of that rubbing elbows is the, the desire. You've told me all the time, relationship is like having a sticker on your back with, with your name. You can't see it. And the people who are behind you, who love you are just trying to tell you what's on your back. And that is so frightening. That is so terrifying because in me, I don't believe yet. I'm working towards it. That if you see me fully, you being the person that I'm working in love, love ethic with, that you would still love me, that you would still continue down this path with me. And I believe La Marad is saying that there is this balance of holding yourself, loving what's unlovable, but also being in those communities that can hold you as well. I think we should hold our relationships to ourselves and to other people to that ethic of being able to hold space for what arises. Uh, I'm not saying that we shouldn't condone violence of ourselves and others, but I think the love ethic will allow us to be in school for relationship to whatever arises as we're peeling back this, this desire to bypass. Well, this, and, and we have to rip down, I mean, along with capitalism and white supremacy and everything else, we have to rip down the, the, the love myth the love myth that that when if I fall in love with you, I'm falling in love with what's lovable about you. No, yeah. if I fall in love with you, I have to be willing to take on your demons and shadows. Not not that it's my work to do, but right. I'm just holding out the image. That's I feel like that's my mother. It's like, oh, isn't it nice? You know, it's like, no, it's not nice actually. It's oh. ugly and it's 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 raw and it's sharp. 
And, um, you know, she said the other night, it's like, we were talking about spanking and she was like, oh, I didn't spank you. Did <laughs> It's like, uh, yeah, mom, you did. You did. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. And that's a, yeah, yeah. <laughs> It's like, oh, I'm sorry if I did that. You know, it's like, Ooh. well, you know what? The damage is actually done, you know? And what what continues is sort of like the way in which you can't acknowledge that, you know, like her memory at 93 is just sort of like trying to reach for the quote unquote good memories. You yeah. know, that's like make America fucking good again. No, that's right. It's never fucking good. Or, or it was never good for some people. And you know what? Even for white people, it wasn't good either because we, we weren't in touch with, you know, the violence we were perpetuating in order to get the land we live on. That's right. That's right. So much, so much spiritual amnesia that we're all working, working from. And it feels like this, this chunk of, of the book is about us taking off, taking out the narcotics, you know, taking out yeah. like rage, rage can be a narcotic in its own sense. We become addicted yeah. to it because yeah. it fuels us forward. And yeah. the, the, the practices, it's like, no, feel, 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 relate, relate, relate. And then you can begin the process of healing. Yeah. And you know what? We're, we're, we're never going to be healed. I mean, healing is not a destination. Absolutely not. You know, Absolutely it's not. never going to be, it's, I mean, you know, I just read the article on reparations in the Sunday New York times um, called what is owed. Um, I'm sorry, black woman writer. I'm not going to um, remember her name, but it's an excellent article. And you know, I sat down with my mom, we went over like 400 years timeline, you know, history of slavery. And, you know, like I learned that there was this Homestead Act, where 20% of the wealth that white Americans have in the Midwest came from millions of acres being given by the federal government to whites moving west, probably into Indian territory. Um, you know, so there have been all these federal give outs to white people. And then black people during Reconstruction, like the one time we said, okay, 40 acres and a mule, Lincoln gets assassinated, Andrew comes in, reverts the whole thing back, boom, black people have fucking nothing. Yeah. Um, so, you know, so everything has this history that is also being uncovered and it will never be made whole. Mm. We, we could turn every fucking penny over and all the land to black people. No. That would not make things whole. It, you know, we might give it a try. I mean, there has to be some reparation, but it is not. I mean, and so maybe that gets back to your point about having relationships with each other. I mean, isn't healing called wholeness and, and making wholesome choices is the Buddhist thing that I love the language, but, you know, we're seeking to, to embody whole, wholeness. How difficult is it? For us to have our own shadow, let alone for me to fall in love with your shadow. Oh. Esther Perel says when you get married to somebody or whatever, partnered, it's like what you say is, I am your burden. <laughs> I am your burden. I had a I had a friend who said it's like you're agreeing to kick my ass and I'm agreeing to kick yours. Like, like totally. Yeah, and willing to get your ass kicked, not just yeah. be the kicker. That's kind That's of right. fun, maybe. 
Maybe. <laughs> but to get your ass kicked, and La Mirad says in there too about the vision of the civil rights people who curled up in a ball and, you know, on some level allowed themselves to be beaten by clubs and hoes, you know, and then this protection. No, we have this mother bear, like, get your bodies out of there. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So we're trying to learn a different way of resisting. And, you know, one of the things that I really want to work on is the overwhelm, the to, to make space for the overwhelm and, and know that there are so much, there's so much work that we have to do and we're not going to get it all right. And in one life, you're not going to be able to do everything, but every, everything can be held in space. Everything can be held. And I believe that if we just begin personally and collectively to hold space, that there is a spark of life and creativity that can lead to the next thread of love, whatever that expression is. Lama Rod says in this book that the highest level of experience through the Buddhist lens is seeing everything as just an expression, not a label of good or bad or the wrong way or the right way. And I want, I, I, my aspiration is to practice towards that, to see my life and my experiences as expressions in them of themselves that lead to love and that lead to space. That's yeah, my aspiration. Let's not, let's not forget movement though. Let's not forget you and me embodying movement. That's right. I have my hand on, I'm sitting on a bed, but one hand is on the bed, one hand is reaching to the sky. Like Buddha's fi final gesture was, you know, touching earth you know yeah. sitting in front of the bodhi tree so you know even all the discussion we're having is is human centered you That's know right. and we are human animals that have you know basically raped and destroyed and resourced and shat on the earth and the earth is now suffering terribly um and will shake us off i mean we're inconsequential but yeah, that's know, right. That's right. I want to move through through it. Yeah. I, I don't know that I can sit. You know, I, that's mm. another thing that I just feel kind of like a meditation faker. You know, because really, I mean, I can get some clarity sitting, but I'm a mover. I mean, I'm just too fidgety, <laughs> and um, I just have got. You know, I don't know if it's an expression of my agitation. Or yeah. it's meditation and motion, but um, mm -hmm. I, I like to move also. I really, I like to use this body for an expression of movement that, that makes it feel like the sacred vibrational vessel and good if drumming is involved or, you know, just some vibration and to watch you move and to move with you. Like I see that you are a channel also. Yes, yes. Absolutely. I am. I'm a channel. I'm a channel for um, higher vibration. I'm a channel for the unseen worlds. And, and that's what that that's what gives me faith about uh, our experience right now is that there are I believe there are worlds um, and gods and experiences that we don't have access to until we pass away. And so my movement is I'm, I'm, I'm in possession. I'm in I'm in um, sacred possession. And um, that's part of my practice. And so I would, I would love for us to actually end with a practice. And I'm, I'm, I'm feeling inspired to co-create something with you, Annie. Your, your call for movement and embodiment 
I think is something that listeners could could benefit from. Um, even if it's something really short, that could be done um, even sitting if there's a movement practice. But I would like to offer us a reflection on the different embodiments to um, call them in and to, the, to remember them. And then I'll pass it over to you to either end. You said you were interested in the seven homecomings. We could do something with that, or we could do some sort of easy a movement, three minute practice. How does that sound? Well, beautiful. Just as you name the embodiments, um, I'd like you to invite people and I will be doing the same just to to offer a gesture, wherever you're sitting, whatever you're doing, you know, you're going to say something, maybe physical body, whatever you're saying, and then just take a, make a gesture, whatever it is, but just move your arms or open your mouth or, you know, stick your tongue out, what, whatever gesture arises, just so we start to embody what, what you're saying. as That's you powerful. That's powerful. And that, that may suffice your desire for movement. So yeah. if I, if I pass it off to you and you feel like it's complete, we can, yeah. we can close. Okay. Beautiful. All right. So I just invite the listeners to be in a comfortable position, whether that's sitting, lying, standing, however you'd like to feel supported and contained by the earth. And the first remembering we're we're remembering our our physical bodies these are all listed in chapter five of Lamarad's book we're remembering our physical body and so first before you do a gesture just sense sense how you're being supported in the book there's the sense that that the world the earth the planet is always supporting us always holding us we aren't floating we are being held so can you feel that as your body settles, there's something to hold you? And when you're ready, make a gesture that you recognize your body, that you see it, that you know it, that you love it. I'm going to place my hand on my heart and you can go ahead and do what feels right for you. And next, we'll move into the emotional body. It is said that our emotional body exists energetically in our second chakra, which is just below the navel. It's articulated and refined through the solar plexus. So our belly is really where we hold our emotional presence. How are you feeling right now? How are your emotions? What are the sensations that your mind label as emotions? And now begin to welcome your emotional body. Express it, welcome it, love it in however manner you feel most appropriate. I wish I could see Annie. <laughs> <laughs> I'm smiling and, ex and extending my arms. What are you doing? I have my hands on my belly, but my belly is smiling back at you. Yeah. And now we go into the subtle energy body, which is something I completely forgot about in my 33 year, 31 years of life. Notice the energy that is beyond emotion or bigger than emotion, even, even though it's subtle. Notice the energy around you and the energy within you. Some could call this the life force itself and that the breath itself helps us sense the subtle emotion, subtle energy. And when you're ready, 
do a gesture to welcome it and to express it. And now we're going into the sexual body. We can also call it our sensual body. This area would also be in the belly associated with the second chakra around the genital area. You could come to mind, come bring to mind a time where you felt especially sexual and sensual and how that made you feel. That's right. That's right. And if you'd like to express that <laughs> in the comfort of your own home in this moment, you can. <laughs> I am moving my hips in a circle, which really warms and lubricates the, the lower second chakra. It's also fundamental to, to twerking. <laughs> I'm thinking about skinny dipping. Yes, we've skinny dipped together. <laughs> and now we go into the spiritual body. When I think of the spiritual body, I think of the selves that exist in other dimensions that we aren't aware of, that we must call on for support in this time. Think of the avatar self, which is the highest self that has our, 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 our most highest good in mind. And I think of the ways in which the spiritual body intermingles with the bodies of the ancestors to create a conversation between the dimensions that we are able to observe, the 3D dimensions and the dimensions that we are not able to. So just see if you can have a relationship with your spiritual body, how you understand it, how you've experienced it in your life. Call to mind a time when you felt the presence of spirit. And when you're ready, express it welcome it into the space. Whew. And now we will recognize our collective body. Collective body is the remembrance that we are always connected to every sentient being, whether we know it or not. The closer we are, the more we recognize that relationship, the more we can feel the pain and the suffering of others. Let us draw to mind, call to mind those people who are in our collective that we know, in our communities that we know, our families, our friends who may be suffering in this time. Draw them to mind and do an offering to them. Make a gesture of recognizing them in your space and in your heart. And now we will begin to sense, hold space for all sentient beings who are also part of our collective body. And we will make an offering to those beings as well the ones that we don't know, yet we are still connected to. And we will <laughs> probably after we get off this podcast, connect with our social media body. And one of the things that Lamarad and I had a big laugh about are those memes that convey wisdom 
those memes, those YouTube videos, we can also relate to the pain and the confusion that is being conveyed into our social media body. So we'll just draw to mind as an articulation of that, what we're sensing and seeing and feeling as we relate to people virtually, even more so now that we're at the age of COVID and we're having to be separate from our collective body. And finally, we will relate to our ego body. And in the book, Lama Raj says that our ego body is necessary in order to be in relationship with others, but it's also a channel, a, a source of great suffering for us. So in this moment, can you identify anything that you may be fixated on, that you may be struggling with as an expression of your ego body? We'll take some time to hold space for this and to identify what we may be suffering or struggling with. And when you're ready, create a gesture of acknowledging your ego body, of creating space, and of ultimately loving your ego body. And that closes our embodiment practice. Is there anything that you would like to say or offer before we close my love? I think that was really, really helpful. I just loved it. Every, everything that was going on as you named each one, I think it was a powerful practice. And the only thing that has not been um, shared is voice. So I think just a collective not even an ohm, but just a hum, you know, that if we took three breaths with each other, like raising our arms and then just hum on the exhalation, then we'd feel the vibration in the mouth and in the vocal cords and down into the heart. Just three hums together to join our voices and embody voice. So inhale, arms up and exhale. And again. Last time vibrating together, inhaling. That was our cat bodies purring, yes. purring together. Yes. It was so delicious talking to you. Oh, I love you so much. And uh, could you let people know where to find you and, and work with you? Um, I think my website is anniehoffmanyoga.com. So you can, I have my virtual classes listed. I'm just Zooming classes now. And... There's an intensive coming up in July that we'll have. We'll have some breakouts and contemplations. and But 
Annie Hoffman yoga at yahoo.com. That's my email. And I'm also doing um, some fundraising for Melissa Alexis's group, the heal. So um, I would suggest that as a place to make any financial donations. She's just doing amazing work, creating cohorts and coaching um, uh, people, mostly people of color to um, into their own um, growth and embodiment. Yeah, and I was a part of that cohort and it's absolutely amazing. Uh, you can Google Melissa Alexis um h-e-a-l dot uh not that's not the website but just google her name and heal i'm forgetting her website off the top of my head is it cultural fabric that's it culturalfabric.com right i think so yeah yeah you can you can um, put that in your search engine and find her awesome thank you so much for being here annie i love you and i'll talk to you soon i'll call you in a couple days and we can just shoot the shit fabuloso (laughs) all right Love you too. Love you. Bye. Bye, sweetie.